Well, brethren, I want to give something this afternoon that is not something new necessarily, but it might be parts of it would be new to a number of you because a lot of our brethren, when I've heard them talk, get little bits and pieces mixed up about prophecy, and they get things mixed up too, of course, about uh, the importance of who we are and what it's all about and are not sure of this and not sure of that. And I want to nail down certain things in your mind. I've been studying prophecy a little bit more the last few months than I had before, and I want to share some of that with you this afternoon. And uh, so I think it's important that we do understand those things, and I'm going into that in a little bit more of a teaching sermon this afternoon, and I hope that you can follow uh, with me, uh, follow very carefully in your Bible. If you have your Bible there with you, it will mean more to you if you will, because sometimes we think, well, how come you can say this means this? I remember when I first came to Ambassador College, Mr. Armstrong said, the Bible says this, and America's going down, and Britain's going down, and how can you know all that? Well, I can't give you the whole thing this afternoon, but I want to give you a little bit of a platform from which to prove those things to yourselves. First of all, the foundation before the regular uh, platform, or this part of it begins, though, you have to prove to yourself, and I hope that you will, do it very, very carefully and thoroughly, obviously, that there is a real God and that this Bible is inspired of that God. Secondly, if you haven't done so for a while, it would be good to go back and reread Mr. John O'Gwen's fine booklet on America and Britain and prophecy, or the United States and British Commonwealth and prophecy. We've had about seven different titles for that, so I can't even remember which is the latest one. <laughs> when I first came to Ambassador College, it was United States and prophecy, and then later it became the United States and British Commonwealth and prophecy. And then I think Mr. McNair wrote one for us, American Britain and prophecy, and then United has one, something United States and something, and I think now we have one, and Flurry has one, everybody has one. But anyway, you know what I mean. Go back and read that booklet carefully, because God led Mr. Armstrong to come to understand that, and he said that was the key, and it is, that was the key to understanding about 90%, about 90% of end-time prophecy, if you understand that key. And I want to say at the beginning, as I've said before, to all of our Gentile brethren, and some of us without thinking think, well, by Gentile we mean our black brethren or uh, Latino brethren. Well, yes, but they're not the only ones. The Russians and the Poles and the Czechs and the Hungarians and Romanians and everybody else are just not Israel. And most of us are something else anyway, as I am. And I'm partly American Indian and partly, uh, 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 partly uh, German. And many of you are partly this and partly that. The point is, you brethren who are not specifically Anglo-Saxon, uh, Protestant, not Protestant, but Anglo-Saxon Celtic people here, why, you are... Uh, not Israelite, but you are spiritual Israel, as the Bible says, and that's the most important thing. But you live in physical Israel, and when the attack comes, the missiles and the atomic bombs have no racial prejudice. <laughs> Believe me, they just will come down, you know, and we all need to realize that fact. And as I've said before, when I'm talking about prophecy, most of the things I say about prophecy are not saying how great, you know, America is or how great 
the British or the uh, uh, Ephraimite and Manassite people are. Most of prophecy is devoted, especially the part we normally preach on, telling what's wrong with us, how we have sinned, in which we have sinned terribly, and how God is going to have to chasten us with the greatest national punishment in human history. So please understand that. And if you understand it in that context, it won't hurt your feelings, you know, because we can't be, we can't determine who we are. I don't know why I was born a man rather than a woman. I don't know why I was born of Anglo-Saxon Celtic background primarily rather than someone else. Each of us has to do the best wherever we are because all of us are made in the image of God. And all of us in a few years will be neither male nor female or black or white or tall or thin or whatever will be made a spirit being in the family of God. And that is magnificent. And we can look forward to that. But in the meantime, we should understand God has created differences between the sexes. He has created differences between the races. And He has created differences even within the ethnic groups. I'm not Jewish at all. I don't know if I have even one drop of Jewish blood in me. I might. I think I might be partly Levite, but not just the tribe of Judah. But the Jewish people, and I'm not one of them, they have more capacity as a particular ethnic group than any group on the earth. They just do. You have more Jews who are outstanding scientists and outstanding doctors and outstanding musicians way beyond their proportion in the society. So let's all go hate the Jews, okay? (laughs) You see what I mean? People get jealous of things like that. Don't do that. Just be grateful for who you are and the opportunities that you have. And each one of us has to have that point of view and try to see these things from God's point of view. I want to start back here in the book of Amos. And I'm going to start. I was looking at my notes, Mr. Hall, and actually I started the Dallas campaign with the same uh, scripture, but I'll start a few verses earlier here. Turn to Amos chapter 3. This is a prophecy, Amos, which is referred to in the New Testament as the Word of God, of course, and as scripture. Turn back to Amos chapter 3, verse 1. This scripture was written back before ancient Israel's fall, by the way, about 760 to 750. And so it was a dual prophecy, talking about uh, prophecies affecting ancient Israel, but very definitely, if you read it carefully, affecting modern Israel. And I think most of you know I've said, read that booklet showing that the descendants, the physical descendants of the so-called lost ten tribes of Israel are found primarily in among the British peoples, the British descended and American peoples and the democracies, the peace-loving democratic states of Northwestern Europe, like France and Holland and Luxembourg and, and, uh, and Norway and Sweden and Denmark and so on. And uh, he doesn't include Germany in that because, of course, they, they are the descendants of the Assyrians. But the peace-loving democracies of Northwestern Europe are all Israelite as well. And we need to get, we're talking about getting an article or a whole booklet on that before it's all over. But anyway, hear the word of the Lord that he has spoken against you. So God's not bragging about us who are Israelite. He's telling our problems here. Against you, O children of Israel, get this, brethren. The reason I want you to concentrate on certain words, a lot of you may not have read that just this way. Most of you grew up in Catholic or Protestant churches, I suppose, as I did. 
And all your lives, you've had drummed into your head, Jew is Israel, and Israel is Jew, and they're all the same thing. No, they are not. Israel left Judah and rebelled against the king, and for about 200 years, you find them fighting each Israel. And the first time you find the word Jew in the Bible, in the King James, the Jews were warring against Israel. They were two separate nations. The northern kingdom in Samaria was Israel, and the southern kingdom, having its headquarters at Jerusalem, was Judah. But notice he says, against you, children of Israel, against the whole family. You see what I mean? Every now and then God explains. He means, I mean all 12 tribes. I'm not just talking about Judah, which I brought out of the land of Egypt. So he brought our ancestors out too. He brought out the Ephraimites and the Manassites and the Reubenites, who are in a modern form, the, basically the French people and so on. And I brought them from the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. He selected them as his special people. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Again, God is not saying good things. He's saying, I have blessed you, as he often does in these prophecies. But now I'm going to have to chastise you because you've had the greatest national blessings of all peoples on the earth, which the British and American peoples have had. We've had this marvelous land from sea to shining sea. Together, we and the British descended peoples because we did have help, obviously great help from Britain and then from Canada and from Australia and New Zealand. You go back and see the old, old war movies. How is it that these people stuck together? It wasn't just language. There's something far deeper than that. The British are not just our British cousins. They are our British brothers. And our nation does not fully understand that, but something in them makes them realize this is special. This is special. We've stuck together. Together we won World War I. Together we won World War II. Together we won these other wars like the first Gulf War and so on. And together we're going to go down, frankly, and that's a, that's a shame. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey and so on? He says in verse 8, if a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? A trumpet is usually a sound of war, alarm of war, or trouble. If there is calamity in a city, will not the eternal have done it? Any great big problem, God has either directly known about it and allowed it, and maybe prophesied it knowing the way people were heading toward anyway, or he directly intervenes and causes it. And the Bible makes that very clear. Every hair of our head is numbered. He knows these things. Surely the eternal God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Somewhere on this earth, God has true servants. And brethren, and I hope all of the rest of you understand, and I would like to talk to any of our black brethren or Chinese or, or uh, Hispanic, if this is, hurts anybody's feelings, I, don't want, I want to learn to explain these things the right way. But we must not get a hurt feelings hurt about this. He's talking about the sins of these people, Israel, now primarily. But somewhere on this earth is a true work of God and true servants of God. And they do need to understand, they do need to understand the ethnic background of the people of the world to so we can know what these prophecies are talking about. Is God interested in that? That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is your character. 
And that's absolutely true. But on the other hand, you go way ahead into the eternal city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and it talks about the 12 gates named after the 12 tribes of Israel. God never forgets that. That's interesting. He never forgets that. So it is important to God, that background that we have, and we want to use our background, each one of us, in the right way. So he, God does not do any big thing unless he reveals his secret to his true servants, obviously, his servants, the prophets. Some of these Methodist ministers and Presbyterian and people out there like churches I grew up in, they're very sincere men, many of them. But they, many of them don't even talk about prophecy. They don't even act like it exists. They don't know who we are. They don't know why we're here. And they don't know where we're going. They have no idea whatsoever. But true, God has true servants that do understand and are to give you that message. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The eternal God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? We've got to prophesy. We must prophesy. Mr. Ames and I and Mr. Wally Smith and Mr. Rod King on the telecast and Mr. Uh, Dr. Winnale and others who give these fine special presentations joining those uh, the rest of us doing those all across the United States and around the world. We've got to prophesy. We've got to get this message out to the world. God commands us to. That's why we're here. That's why we're called. So that's important for us to realize. God does want His servants to do those things and to say these things. Turn back to chapter 5 of Amos. I'm just going to hit some high spots. I've given you the background of the book. I wish I could expound every verse. I'd be glad to. Maybe we should have a Bible study and every Bible study explained a different book of the Old Testament or one of these smaller books or something like that. We used to do that in Pasadena. We'd come in there the Friday night Bible study. And I'll tell you, it took us a long time to go through Isaiah, though. We didn't cover that all in one, in one night. It took us 10 or 15. And, of course, if people were sick, they missed out on that part of Isaiah. Anyway, turn to chapter 5 here. And beginning in verse 1, Hear this word which I take up against you, this lamentation, O house of Israel. He's talking to us. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She'll rise no more. Yes, God is going to bring us down. Thus says the eternal, The city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. Do you believe that? I just want to tell you, brethren, it's not fun stuff. But God says these types of things a number of times. He's going to decimate our peoples at the time of the end. One-tenth may be left. America at the end may have, let's say we keep growing before the very end, maybe we'll have 320 million people. I'm just picking a number. And up, we're up to about 310 now. What would, uh, what would be left? 32 billion. Wow. There'd still be a lot of folks, but think of all those others that would not be here. And I want to say this also. This could be very gloomy to you, but you need to realize if you serve God, uh, you're going to be missing out on a lot of things. <laughs> think about that part of it. You're going to be missing out on all these terrible things that are coming if you walk with God. If you walk with God. But it ought to inspire us to reach out to our people to help them understand before it's too late, to reach out to those of us who are Israelite, 
to reach out to our black brethren and all the black communities around the United States and the world, our Latino brethren in the Spanish areas of the world, 400 million Spanish-speaking peoples eventually to be able to reach the Chinese and everybody else, because all these things are going to come to a lesser extent on other peoples, but they're going to come. So he says, uh, for Israel at least, only 10 may be left out of 100. For thus says the house... Uh, the uh, eternal to the house of Israel. And he undoubtedly means all of it. Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. That was one of their high places where they had the ancient pagan altars. Nor enter Gil Gilgad, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the eternal and live, lest he break out like a fire. To who? The Jews? No. He'll do that too, but notice what it says, to the house of Joseph. God is specific. Who is the house of Joseph? The house of Joseph is the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the United States are primarily, the white Anglo-Saxon Celtic people are primarily descendants of Manasseh, and God's going to break out like a fire, and if you read this book carefully, you see that much of this is talking about not just what happened way back there, but to the time of the end. And devour it with no one to quench it. No one will be able to quench that fire at the time of the end. Then going on here, he says in verse uh, chapter 6, turn to chapter 6 and verse uh, 1, if you would. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion, who trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons and the chief of nation to whom the house of Israel comes. So he says, woe to them, because he's talking about what is going to happen here uh, later on. Notice verse 6. He says, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourself with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. These things are specifically primarily coming upon which peoples? Upon the British descended and American peoples. If you read Hosea and Amos and many other scriptures like that, you'll see that. Why us primarily? Because frankly, we've been the greatest recipients of the national blessings. We were the ones who had the greatest armies. We were the ones who had the greatest navies. We were the ones who got control of the gates of our enemies. We've had far greater blessings in those ways than the French or the Belgians or the Dutch or the Danes or the other people. And we are the ones that's whom God gave the interest and the capacity and guided us to send out more Bibles. We've sent out more Bibles, more missionaries, more ministers, more doctors and nurses and teachers than all the other nations of the world combined. Now, that's a blessing. We've been good to a certain extent, but we have not done fully what God intended and so we, greater, with greater responsibility comes greater judgment. The teachers, God says in the book of James, are subject to stricter judgment. And we have, greater, have had greater knowledge of the, of the Word of God, greater blessings in other ways. So God is bringing the great tribulation primarily upon Joseph and to a lesser extent the other tribes of the house of Israel. You are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now go into captivity as the first of the captives. And those who recline at the banquet shall be removed. The eternal himself has sworn by himself. The Lord of hosts says, I have whore the pride of Jacob. 
Our peoples have been very proud, very proud, and God is going to bring us down and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. So he has a number of scriptures talking primarily about our people, uh, Joseph, and uh, so on. And it's good to realize that as you read through uh, these, these books. Anyway, brethren, I want to have you understand that. Now turn to chapter 9, if you would. Chapter 9, and I'm going to begin reading in, in verse 8. God says, Behold, the eyes of the eternal God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. He's not going to totally destroy our nation, but we're going to be brought down powerfully. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel. That's all of the ten tribes, but certainly again primarily the British descended and American peoples of Great Britain, of Canada, and of Australia, and New Zealand, and the white English people of South Africa, and certainly the Americans. I will sift them among all the nations as the gram is sifted, and yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. That's interesting. God says not a hair of her head will fall without God's knowledge. He said, how can God do that? Because God is in charge. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake us nor confront us, but it shall, he will have those things happen. So finally he shows in verse 14, I will bring back the captives. What's going to happen to us? Again, God says over and over the descendants of Israel at the time of the end, the descendants of Joseph and the descendants of Judah at the time of the end will both go into national captivities, not separately, but this time together, and together they will come back because they are one people. Together they will come back. And I, in case I forget to tell you later, a lot of you know, brethren, this already, but think about it, the rest of you. Check up on me if you doubt it. If you read about stuff by Pat Robertson or uh, Jerry Falwell stuff, he's dead now, but his stuff that he said and preached and all these other uh, prophecy preachers, Tim LaHaye and whoever you want to name, John Hagee, they all keep referring back to 1948. They say, well, that was when the Jews were regathered, and that was the great regathering of Israel. Well, that's ridiculous. They don't even know who Israel is. Did all the Jews go back to, to the little nation of Israel in 1948? No, they did not. Just a tiny portion. The vast majority of the Jews remained in the United States and the Soviet Union and elsewhere. Others have gone since, but a, a very small portion. I haven't got it figured out. Maybe some of you can help me, but maybe it's only one-third or more like fifth or one-seventh one or something of the total Jewish population went back at that time in 1948. That was not the great regathering of Israel at all. And God shows again and again, if you notice as we read these things, at the end, Israel and Judah, he says both, Israel and Judah will both come back together, not separately. And so these other preachers don't understand that. Remember always Psalm 111, verse 10. Psalm 111, verse 10. A good understanding have those who do His commandments. Not just talk about them, but do them. And that's what we've got to understand. So anyway, he, he says, Then I will bring back the captives of my people Israel, and that means all of them this time, 
They shall build the waste cities, inhabit them, plant vineyards, drink wine. You can say, well, the Jews did all that. Not the way it's described here. Keep reading. They shall also make gardens and eat. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up. Well, the Jews are going to be pulled up again. And other scriptures show how when Israel is brought back, they're going to be at peace and be blessed. And are the Jews at peace and blessed? No, they're surrounded by enemies. Day and night they're in fear. They never know when their rockets are going to come over from the Arab neighbors nearby. So they'll no longer be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the eternal your God. So that 1948 regathering was just a precursor, a small type perhaps, of the regathering of all Israel, millions of them, back to the land of Israel, which is going to occur at the second coming of Christ, which is another entire subject, but we'll be coming back to it from time to time here. Now let's turn, brother, to the book of Ezekiel. Turn back to the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, and I want to give you some scriptures here. Uh, on that that I hope will be enlightening and you can see a different a little understand it a little bit more deeply Ezekiel chapter 1 and by the way Ezekiel El is one of the names of God you know El Shaddai means God Almighty and uh, so many other names of God Emmanuel God with us have that name in them El is the name of God so the Ezekiel, his very name means God is strong. And he says over and over in this book, then they shall know that I am the ever living one. He says, I'm going to do this. And then they shall know that I am the eternal. Then they shall know that I am the, he's going to get that in their brains. Today, they don't know. The so-called smartest people of the world don't know that. They try to leave out the knowledge of God. So he says, Now and it came to pass in the thirtieth year of the fourth month on the fifth day as I was among the captives. What? They had already gone into captive. He was among the Jewish captives by the river Kabur that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. So that shows it was the captivity of Judah. And Israel had been kept, taken into captivity long before because nearly all of the scholars, when you have get a good Bible dictionary and commentary, and they generally tell you, if you want to write it down, that Ezekiel was written about 593 to 571 B.C. No one knows exactly, so those are general dates, but based upon the kings that were there at that time, 570. I'm sorry, 593, I think my writing means, 593 to 571 B.C. And so about over a 22-year period. As you know, Israel was taken into captivity about 721 to 718 B.C., which would have been about 30 years earlier. So way before this, ancient Israel had been taken into captivity, and now Judah is being taken into captivity, and Ezekiel is giving visions about what? about something that happened 30 years ago? No. Well, actually, no. This is uh, about 130 years ago, I mean. <laughs> I got straight here. No, he's not talking about something that happened 130 years ago. He's talking about a yet future captivity on Israel and on Judah. And so he's given these visions. And then he's described 
are pictured here, the power of God in the next couple chapters and how great God is. And in chapter 3, notice this. He said to me, Son of man, eat what you uh, find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So Judah, I mean Ezekiel, found himself among the tribes of Israel here. I mean among the Jewish captivities. And he was told to go to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he ate this scroll. And uh, he said it tasted like honey in his mouth. And he said, Son of man, go to the house of Israel. He was among the Jews, so he had to go to, over to give them a warning and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech or hard language, but to the house of Israel. And notice what he says. But the house of Israel, verse 7, will not listen to you. So Ezekiel gave a little bit of this warning. Perhaps we have no knowledge he gave it very much or very powerfully at all, but he wrote it for us today. He wrote it for us today, and much of it is specifically for us today because it was written about 130 years after Israel's captivity and is talking about, has to be, a yet future captivity on the descendants of the house of Israel, on Ephraim and Manasseh at the time of the end, and all the peoples of France and Holland and Belgium and Luxembourg and, and Norway, Sweden, Denmark and Switzerland and those democratic nations of northwestern Europe. He said they're hard-headed. Do the people out there all respond? Well, we had some people call Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Hall and the others about the Dallas campaign, and that's very encouraging. We had a couple hundred calls or whatever it was. How many people live in the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area? Over 5 million, okay? I don't think the city got all excited. We'd have had to rent the Dallas uh, Stadium or the uh, whatever it is to get, and there still wouldn't have been enough room. Most of the people are not very happy with the truth today, and they're not going to be either till Christ comes again. But brethren, we have to understand this. They will not listen to you because they will not listen to me, God says himself. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. They just will not listen. Boy, they're stubborn. Sometimes the German people can be more mean if they get a dictator to lead them in a certain way and the drums start beating and so on. We, we've seen that in World War One and again in World War Two, and we're going to see it again. But the only nation that ever really repented and turned to God was ancient Assyria, Assyria. Uh, when uh, Jonah went in there and the whole city repented, remember, Nineveh repented and turned to God. And they, he, the king even had the animals fast <laughs> to turn to God. They were shaken. Sometimes the Gentiles move this way and that way a little bit more quickly, but they'll turn to God more easily than the hard-headed peoples of Israel. So each of us has our strengths and each of us has our weaknesses. They will not listen to me. Then he says, verse 8, Behold, I, was, I have made your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Brethren, I want you to understand this. I may not get to finish all my notes here today. I've got a whole bunch of things to expound and maybe I could pick it up next time if need be. But all of you are part of our team. And I hope all of you brethren around the world in the Philippines and Australia and New Zealand and Southeast Asia and Africa and Europe, and Canada, and everywhere will be part of our team. We're all one little tiny church. We're grateful now. We have over 8,000 people now that are beginning to attend the Living Church of God out of uh, 
billion peoples on the earth. <laughs> so we're still only half a peanut shell in the Pacific Ocean. We're very, very tiny. Let's not think how great we are, how great God is. Yes, He is great. We're tiny. But brethren, as we get this message out, we are not going to be able to win friends and influence people in the way Dale Carnegie said. I noticed Mr. Pyle up here was uh, beaming with his smile even more today, and that's good. But I don't think they're all just going to beam at us when we say, you people are going to be punished and brought down. You know, I don't think they're going to like that. And Mr. Armstrong used to start out the World Tomorrow radio program over and over and over and says, why can't all these preachers preach the Bible? How come they turn people against the message of Christ? They talk about Christ, but they will not preach His message. And, of course, when we'd come to their homes on the baptizing terms, old baptizing tours, I'm not exaggerating. I had this happen at least two or three dozen times or more uh, in general, not the exact words, but we'd come up and, and we'd say, and maybe the wife was being converted and the husband wasn't, and she asked for the visit and he wasn't wanting us there. And, uh, well, who are you boys from? Ambassador College. Armstrong, you get out of here. And a couple of them pointed guns at us, and one guy started throwing rocks at us and all kinds of things. So God knew about that. He knew about that. That's the way it is. But brethren, you and you brethren around the world were part of the team that Jesus Christ is using today to get this message to the world. And you're going to have to develop. Some of you are already that way. But perhaps many of us are not as much as we should be. You're going to have to develop a sense of faith and courage beyond what many have to go through what's ahead. Absolute faith and courage. I've wondered if God has allowed me to be here, and I may not finish the work. Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnale and Mr. Weston and many others may finish the leaders in the work in the future. Who knows? But one reason God has used me thus far, I guess, is because I have, you know, all kinds of faults, hundreds of them. But I grew up at a tough mining town. And even though I wasn't very big, I got to full size before my friends. So by the sophomore, you know, year of high school, I was still as big as most people. And by the junior and senior year and on to college, the other guys get kept getting bigger, but I was already full-sized and in good shape or whatever, so I did all right in sports and boxing, and I've got this thing on my right hand and this great big scar on my left hand, and scars all over my head from rock fights, I've told you, and we, we, we were, if you got used to people hitting you in the head with rocks, and you played for Kaminsky, you know, our, our big Russian football coach, his favorite word was drive. And when the we we thought they were big guys, uh, Bill Steinbeck and and uh, uh, I was trying to think of all the guys. Stud was his net name, uh, and Burr was another one. Uh, and they had these nicknames. Anyway, they they'd butt against each other. We thought they were big, you know, 175 or 220 pounds. But Kaminsky was just as big as they were. He was about six feet and 220 or 30, and he'd been a football player in college. So he got right up next to them, and if they didn't hit each other hard enough, he'd say, "Drive, drive!" You know, <laughs> we, we, so you didn't. If you started crying and got your feelings hurt, well, you could just go home to mama. You were, you know, you, you had to be tough. Or you weren't on his team. That's what I mean. So I grew up in that attitude. And when people started to shout at me later on, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm used to Kaminsky and our junior high foot uh, school, uh, what was his name, Coach Maupin. 
our basketball coach in junior high, and he even cussed. He shouldn't have done that, but he, he was a big tall guy, and he took God's name in vain and cussed at us. But you, you don't get it hurt. Your feelings hurt very easily. But some of you haven't been through that kind of thing as much, but you're going to have to be tough in a right way. Don't be mean. Don't be mean, but know that God is with you and God is going to use you and He's going to use this work if we keep on doing it the way we are and improve. We do need to improve. We do need to do it more perfectly, but we've got to have that courage or we're not going to make it, brethren. So anyway, he says in verse 11, You go, get to the captives of the children of your people and speak to them and tell them, Thus says the eternal God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. I don't care. Tell them anyway, God says. So God wants us to do this kind of job. And brethren, he wants us to have this kind of courage. And you need to develop this courage. Now turn to chapter 4, if you would. Ezekiel 4. Again, I've explained this before, but not too often. All of you concentrate on the technical thing I'm about to say. This is chapter 4 of Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, take a clay tablet, lay it before you, portray it on it, a city, Jerusalem. He's having a kind of a mock attack, like a little boy playing in a sand pile, you see. And this is going to be Jerusalem up here. And he says, lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, heap a mound against it, set camps up also, and uh, place uh, uh, battering rams against it all around, like you're going to knock the walls down and overcome this city. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city so you can go up and besiege this city like a foreign enemy attacking. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. What is this city supposed to represent? He just got through saying, Jerusalem. Now notice what God says. Brethren, this is a key. One key is the identity of Israel. Israel means primarily uh, all 12 tribes of Israel and can mean the house of Israel, that is the lost 10 tribes led by Ephraim and Manasseh or the house of Joseph in contrast to the Jews. But this is talking about Jerusalem and what does this specifically represent in the rest of this book? This will be a sign to the house of Israel. This attack on Jerusalem, you see, is a sign. And when you understand that key, you can understand what this book is about more thoroughly because Jerusalem and what is talked prophesied about Jerusalem, often you'll have to see it by context, includes the whole house of Israel, all 12 tribes. Lie also on your left side and lay iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, and according to the number of the days that you lie on it, for I have laid on you the iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Who's the house of Israel? Well, all scholars know that's all 10 tribes who rebelled against the Jews, and the Levites primarily stayed with the Jews, and the Benjamites. So you had the, 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 Judah, the people of Judah, of Benjamin, and some of the priests, most of the priests, because the temple was there, they stayed there with Judah. And that became the house of Judah, or the nation of Judah, versus the nation of Israel, the other ten tribes. All right? For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity, 
390 days. So you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, this is the house of Israel, and this is God speaking. He knows the difference now. Notice, lie again on your right side, and then you shall bear the iniquity of who? The house of Judah. You have one group, the house of Israel. You have the other group, the house of Judah. Now, I don't think our Methodist minister understood that. And most ministers of the world don't understand it. Or if they do understand it at all, they just think it's kind of a historical curiosity. They don't begin to understand what it means in regard to prophecy because God has not opened their minds. You know, it's not their fault. They're not bad. He just has not called them. So you have the house of Judah separately from the house of Israel. For I have laid on you a day for a year. And by the way... This scripture here, a day for a year uh, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 4, 6, is often used in prophecy. A day uh, in, in the direct prophecy often means a year in actual fulfillment. You'll see that same principle back in Numbers 14, Numbers 14 and verse 34. That same principle, a day for a year in prophecy. So when the prophecy literally says three and a half days, Sometimes it means actually three and one-half years, as we know when it's talking about the Great Tribulation and other scriptures. Now we go to chapter 5. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, pass it as a, over as a barber's razor, and then uh, over your head and beard. Then take balances to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third. Take one-third of the hair that you've cut off. He apparently shaved off his entire head and, and beard one-third in the midst of the city when the days uh, of the siege are finished. So one-third was to be burned in the midst of the city. One-third you shall strike around with a sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind, and I will draw out a sword after them. Now turn, keep your place there, but turn over to verse 12. He says in verse uh, uh, 13, I'm sorry, it is, no, verse 12. One-third of you shall die with the pestilence. So that's what he means in the midst of the city. You're going to die of disease epidemics. That's the third in the midst of the city. And be consumed with famine. So it's famine and disease epidemics. And one-third shall fall by the sword in the attack that's going to come on our peoples. One-third will die. How many people in America? We may have 300 and. 20 million by then, what would one-third be? Well, you can figure that out. About 107 million people will die by the sword and by atomic bombs and missiles and other things like that, all kinds of chemic, biologic warfare and so on. And I will scatter another third to the winds, another entire third, maybe 107 million people approximately, would be taken into slavery, as the other scriptures show, and I will draw out a sword after them, because many of them will die even in the slave camps, just as millions of people of European descent, and especially the Jews, died in the slave camps of Hitler, the Holocaust. All right, go back now here in chapter 5, and he says one-third, one-third, and then he says, You shall take, verse 3, a small number of them, that is the final third, and bind them in the edge of your garment. One small portion who lived through the famine and disease 
and so on were to be taken in a special place and apparently protected by God. But, he says, then take some of them and throw them into the midst of the fire, the terrible holocaust, the war, the trouble that's coming, and burn them in the fire, for from there a fire will go out to where? To the Jews? No, from there a fire will go out to all the house of Israel, all twelve tribes, the Dutch, the Danes, the you know, the Norwegians, the Swedes, the people of, of uh, France, Switzerland, all 12 tribes, plus the American and British-descended peoples. So uh, some people, and this means us, brethren, if we walk with God, and we've had scriptures on that. Mr. Uh, Rod McNair gave a fine sermon a year or two ago about the place of safety and touched on that part of it. If you're really walking with God and praying and studying and obeying God, then God will protect you. God will protect you, and you will not have to go through this. Think of all you're going to miss, okay? That's the good side of the sermon. If you serve God, you would be in this group. But it shows once you're in the place of safety, or maybe on the way there, what happens? Does human nature suddenly vanish? No. You need to think about this. When we get to Petra, and maybe Mr. Ames and I'll be gone and one of these younger men will be in charge and you'll say, well, I don't respect him and I want the bigger cave and they'll start arguing about who gets the big cave and who gets the small cave. And you know what I mean? There's going to be human nature in Petra. We don't say it is Petra. I shouldn't say that. But wherever the place of safety is, human nature will still be there. Mr. Waterhouse was a fine preacher. Many of you older ones knew him. He sometimes went too long or over the top and things. He'd say, I know that. I was his teacher and kind of warned him about that. But on the other hand, one thing I've always thought, he had a lot of wonderful things. And one thing he did, he called Petra the place of final training. The place of final training. And I think that's what it's going to be. Even when we're taken to a place of safety, we're going to have to keep learning, keep growing, keep overcoming, keep humble. So think about that. So this is what's going to happen in the near future. And I don't know, brethren, whether it's going to be in five or six or 12 to 20 years. I hope it's closer to five or six just because the sooner all these things happen, the sooner Christ comes. But I'm sure it's going to be in less than 20 years that all these things will have happened. Thus says the Eternal, this is Jerusalem again. He shows how that was the symbol. Therefore says the Eternal God in verse 7, because you have multiplied disobedience. And again, he's talking about all of Israel. Jerusalem is just a type. More than all the nations around you and have not walked in my statutes. Yes, God is still concerned about his statutes and have not walked in them or my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations around you. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, Indeed, I, even I, am against you, and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you. Notice verse 7 is a very key verse. I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Think about that. There are about four times in the Bible where that kind of thing is mentioned. One of them is back in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22, where Jesus said, 
that, that uh, the time of the coming tribulation is so terrible. There's never been a time like that before, no, nor ever shall be. And the same thing in Daniel 12:1, a time of terrible trouble such as has never been since there was a nation even till now. And then back in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, a time of trouble so great that none is like it. If there's a time of trouble so great that none is like it, you can't have four or five others like that. This is that time, the coming time on the descendants of the British and American peoples especially. And we need to be sobered by that. I think we're going to be much, much worse before uh, it happens. And I'm sorry to think that because I would hope for it all to be over because I get older and I'd like for it to be over tomorrow, of course. But I think we're going to be much worse. I know Mrs. Herbert Armstrong back in the mid-1960s, I can't remember the year, but maybe 1963 or 5, or some of you may remember the exact year they had the the hop-topless bars and the North Shore up there in San Francisco and all that, and she caught Herman Hay and me in the... And she was a very modest woman and very careful, but this time she was really upset. She said, oh, Rod and Herman, she said, these women are just exposing their, their bare breasts up there. And she says, this is just awful. And she said, we really, we don't have very more, many more years to go. I don't see how we can go more than another year or two like this. Think about how awful. I said, no, Mrs. Armstrong, <laughs> I, I, she, I treated, she treated me like a daughter, a son, and I treated her like a mother. And we were very close in those years, many of us, and this little church family. I said, things are going to get much, much worse. I could see that. Just because a few semi-prostitutes were doing up that in San Francisco doesn't mean the nation was going to come down the next year. But it just horrified her to think how bad we were back then. But God is merciful. And God tells in the Bible, remember, how he did not let Israel. Israel had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years partly to teach them lessons, but partly because the sins of the Gentiles were not at the full yet. He waited, and so he may wait another 10 or 15 years until this nation, you're going to have open men, men kissing men and all over this city and all the homosexual stuff going on before your children. It'll make you want to puke, frankly, and all the other stuff. These sex clubs will multiply the time will come when you literally probably cannot have any television in your home because you just push the wrong button and there's sex right in front of you in a way it is even, you know, not as easy to get at today. We're coming to that place, brethren. We're coming to that place. People hate God. They have a deep, profound resentment against the God of the Bible. And they're going to express that by getting worse and worse and worse and in your face. The homosexual agenda wants to just crush you and me. They hate what we're doing. And they will persecute us terribly someday because we say that they're not right. They're sinners. But at any rate, you need to realize the nation we're living in and the world we're living in. And you have to have hard heads. You've got to have faith and courage. Say, I will obey God no matter what. And you've got to know that God is there and that this Bible is true to go through all that in the right way and go through it in faith but without hating them. My human tendency, having grown up in Missouri, I didn't go around killing people and neither did I in my gang. I talk about our gang. We weren't like some New York bunch of 
knife-carrying cutthroats, nobody ever got killed, but we'll punch you in the nose. You know, that was our response, He'll punch you in the nose. And, and that would be my first response. I'll teach you a lesson, I'll punch you in the nose. I'm not a very good puncher at age 80, by the way, I understand that. But I'm just talking about my attitude. But I've got to think, no, no, I'm a Christian, and I'm not going around punching people in the nose. I've got to pray that somehow God will wake them up in His time and help them and shake them in the right way. Please help them understand, Father. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Why? Because they don't get it. They just don't know it. They don't understand what they're doing. And that's what Jesus said Himself as they were killing Him. So we've got to develop that same approach, of course, as best we can. Now you turn to chapter 6, if you would. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel. So here is the whole mountains. In this case, he's talking about the literal uh, mountains and probably all including the city. Sometimes mountain is used as a symbol of city. And he says in verse 6, But in all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste. We preach that many times over the years. But brethren, that's going to happen. Some of it may be done not just from external bombs, but blown up from riots and, and internal uh, problems. But the cities will be laid waste all across the United States, all across Britain and Canada and so forth. And this is going to happen. And then he goes on here later. Uh, he says, The slain shall fall in your midst, verse 7, and you shall know that I am the eternal. He repeats that throughout this book dozens of times. You shall know that I am God. He keeps trying to pound that into their brain. Yet I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered through the countries. Then you were in those of you who escape, and there will be some of us who escape if we're praying and studying, and others will be maybe on the sidelines and not taken into captivity right away, will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. You see, others will go into slavery because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me and by their eyes which pray the harlot after their idols. They've gone after false gods. They will loathe themselves for the evils that they've committed. Some of them will say, Oh, how we'd wish to Mr. Ar we'd listen to Mr. Armstrong. Oh, how we wish we'd listened to Mr. Ames and Mr. Meredith and the others on the telecast and the other true servants of God. How we wished we'd paid attention when we had a chance. And they shall know that I am the eternal. He says, verse 11, Pound your fist, stamp your feet, and say, Alas, for the evil, uh, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, famine, and pestilence. So anyway, he's warning them over and over here. And notice in verse chapter, chapter 7 and verse 23, chapter 7 and verse 23, make a chain, he says, for the land is filled with crimes of blood and the city is full of violence. Is he just talking about the city of Jerusalem over there with a half a million people or whatever it is? No, he's talking about the house of Israel. Jerusalem through this book is a type of the house of Israel. Therefore, I will bring the worst of, of the Gentiles, and they shall possess their houses. I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease. Their holy places shall be defiled. The churches will be torn down. The churches all around here, they don't represent God. 
They're not preaching the truth. God will cause them to be destroyed. Destruction comes. They will seek peace, but there shall be none. Notice verse 26. Disaster will come upon disaster. The implication is, brethren, when these things start to happen, they're going to get on a roll, one thing after the other. Disaster upon disaster, rumor upon rumor, and then they will seek a vision from a prophet. But the law will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. Then they will try to find a true minister. Where is a true minister? Most of the true ministers may be taken to a place of safety. When they start looking, it may be too late. So anyway, you have to sort of sense what's happening here uh, and how important it is that we warn our people. Notice chapter 33, brethren. We've read you this a number of times, but please always understand this is part of your responsibility and my responsibility. It isn't just me. It isn't just Mr. Ames. Brethren, we together are part of a team that Christ is training He's fashioning and molding. He is using. Every one of us try, should try to do our part in this. This is the work of the living Jesus Christ. Chapter 33, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came. Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say, When I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him the watchman. He's done that with Mr. Armstrong and they sent millions of dollars and let him get on television and radio and the printing press. And they're doing that to a lesser extent today through Mr. Ames and me and the other leaders here. And when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet, if we warn the people, then whoever hears the sound and takes warning, then his blood will be upon his own head. But if he hears the sound does not take warning, excuse me, if the trumpet does not sound, then the one who should be proclaiming the truth is responsible. He says in verse uh, 7, so you, he's talking here to me and to Mr. Ames and all of us in general. So you, son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them from me. We've got to tell the people of this nation, you are the descendants of the ten tribes of Israel. You've turned away from God. You sinned. You're going into fornication. You're going into, into living together. And thinking it's all right, you're going into same-sex marriage and homosexuality and sodomy and every rotten, perverse thing that the human mind can imagine you're getting into. God help you to wake up and turn to the God of the Bible. We've got to do that in the right way. And God wants us to do that. So this is our opportunity and this is our responsibility. So we want to realize that and do our part. Notice chapter 34. He says here, a warning to the ministry. The word of the Lord came saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. This is the ministers, the modern Protestant and Catholic ministers who don't tell the truth. Prophesy. Thus says the eternal God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You feed the, eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You go to all the Chamber of Commerce banquets and all the Rotary Club and have nice meetings and nice uh, times and conferences and take it easy. And you're not out there risking your life warning my people what's wrong with you guys. You do not feed the flock. The weak you've not strengthened, nor have you healed those who are sick. And he means that physically as well as spiritually. 
And again, brethren, and all of my fellow ministers, we've got to cry out to God to give us more faith and more courage to have the faith to heal the sick, that God would heal them even more often and more rapidly. But we're trying. You've not bound up which is broken and brought back that is driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. That's what's happened to our people, Israel. It's cruel to just leave them out there. They don't know God. They let these false psychologists and educators who don't believe in God come in and take over and, and pervert their minds with the idea of evolution and every foul thing to turn them away from God. And God doesn't appreciate that. Therefore, he says in verse 22, I will save my flock and they will no longer be at prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will establish one shepherd over them. You see, finally, this is when Christ comes and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. King David of Israel will be resurrected from the dead and he will rule over Israel and I the eternal will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I the eternal have spoken. He says then later that in verse 26, there will be showers of blessings. God will give the, the showers, the rain in due season. Verse 27, then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. He's talking about the millennium, you see. This is all a prophecy for the future, not back then. And the earth shall yield her increase. Then they'll be safe in their land. Are the modern Jews who've gone back to the nation of Israel safe in their land? No, it's horrible. It's horrible. They're not safe there at all. And they shall know that I am the eternal when I have broken the bounds of their bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. So at the time King David comes back, the peoples of Israel and Judah will be coming out of slavery, absolute slavery. And they will come back weeping and repenting and they will be willing finally to learn to learn God's truth and learn God's ways in a way they were not before. So we have to understand that. He says over in chapter 36 here, he says in verse 24, Ezekiel 36, 24, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. He says up in verse 22, speak to the house of Israel. So this is the whole house of Israel. This is addressed to. Then I will cleanse you with water and you'll be clean from your filthiness and verse 26 he tells the house of Israel at the time of the end then I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you has God done that to those few Jews who've gone back to Israel of course not they're blinded where are they today right now on the Sabbath well whenever I've been there I'm sure it's still the same you uh, Mr. Armstrong and some of us stayed at the ter Sheraton Tel Aviv and you could look out from our balcony, and there are all the thousands of Jews out on the beach playing rock music, American rock music, and drinking beer, just like the kids of Santa Monica Beach and here in the States. They don't know God. They're not even keeping their Sabbath. The vast majority of Jews in Israel are not religious Jews at all. No, they're not doing this today. It's going. This is a new time, talking of all Israel. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. God's statutes include tithing. We need to tithe. That's part of God's instruction. That's one reason God is punishing our nation economically because we haven't given him the tenth. We've robbed God. 
and we're not keeping his holy days. They are among God's statutes. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you'll be my people, and I will be your God, and you'll be blessed. And another thing it's important to outsiders to understand, he says in verse 36, in verse 36, Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Eternal, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate, that I have spoken it, and I will do it. Do all the Arab nations around Israel know that today? Of course not. They hate them. They're trying to kill them. They don't know that God has brought them back because most of the Israelites have not gone back anyway. And the Arabs certainly don't know that God brought any of them back. And they don't know who they are. And they don't know who Israel is. And they don't know who Judah is in technical fact. So this is a different time. This time is coming upon us, my brethren. And we need to really understand and try to turn to God and do our part. Let's turn to Luke in the New Testament now. Where do we fit in? I'm going to skip a number of verses here. I think I have a five-hour sermon here. I'd like to keep you till midnight like the Apostle Paul, but some of you are you, you, you're too modern. You'd probably just leave. You'd go to sleep on me like that young man. So let's turn to Luke 21. Here is Christ's overview of the big events at the time of the end. They ask him in verse 7, his disciples, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? He was showing about the utter destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He said, Take heed that you're not deceived. Brethren, events are building up right now. So we're not trying to set dates. But the first of the horsemen that's going to be unleashed, remember, in Revelation chapter 6, and the first thing Jesus said in Matthew 24 and here is what? False prophets, false religion. Those things are going to start speeding up pretty quick over the next few years. The Catholic Pope is reaching out and having all kinds of meetings with the Eastern Orthodox archbishops and others, and he's going this September, just another six or nine weeks, to England to meet with the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's doing everything he can to get the Catholic Church united. At some time, he's going to be given extra power or more likely because of his age and the circumstances, he will die and a younger, even more dynamic man who is more charismatic than he is and maybe, not maybe, but a bill eventually be filled with Satan's spirit will be performing miracles, may literally bring fire down from heaven. And that is going to just electrify the Europeans in a way they haven't been stirred before in modern times. And that's going to happen. You're going to live to see that. And many of the nice Protestant ministers who talk about just love the Lord and all this and they act like they know everything, they're going to very quickly get scared. They're going to join the majority and go with the flow to save their hides, to save their jobs, and save their very lives, of course. And they will go with it, the vast majority of them. And the Catholic Church will take over. The great whore and her daughters will return. Those things are going to speed up over the next, no doubt, three to six years a lot. The next thing is wars and rumors of wars even more than we're having today. That comes next. So then it talks about wars and commotions. And then he said kingdom against kingdom or nation, ethnic groups, ethnics, and then kingdom against kingdom, world wars. And then there will be great earthquakes, verse 11. Not normal earthquakes, great earthquakes in various places, not just all here, but everywhere. 
and famines and disease epidemics, and there will be fearful sights and great signs in the heavens. So these things are going to speed up tremendously. So what's going to happen? Notice verse 28. Verse 28, brethren. Now when these things begin to happen, I don't want you to be discouraged. I've given you some very strong stuff today because it's in your Bible. And you do need to understand it. But here's what Jesus said. When these things begin to happen, and it's going to begin even more in the near future, look up and lift up your heads. You know that. We can say, thank God, it has to get darkest just before the dawn. (laughs) And when these things really start happening big time, it means Christ's coming is that much sooner. Lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And he says in verse 31, So likewise, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Again, he's talking about a real government, isn't he? Some Protestants think the kingdom of God is a warm feeling in your heart. Or they think the church is the kingdom. How come Jesus is saying when these things begin to happen, then the kingdom of God is near? Well, because the kingdom of God is a government. Under Christ, it's going to be set up. It's a real government. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. So it's in the generation when these things happen, you see. And we're getting into that generation and perhaps we're already there. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Even heaven and earth, Christ's words will happen. We must know that. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life. An awful lot of us get involved, you know, in our children and our our housework and buying stuff and which is the latest TV show that we want to see and stuff. We've got to keep our minds on the big picture. There is a great God and that God is intervening powerfully to shake this nation and to shake the world and to send the true Jesus Christ of the Bible back. And we're among the tiny handful of people that really understand And I hope we really do understand. You check my words out. You need to prove these things to where you deeply believe what the Bible says so you can have faith and courage in the years ahead. But take heed, lest the cares of this life get to you and that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always. Jesus Christ said, Watch. Watch these events. Watch world events. Keep your mind on those things. Then you see God intervening. You see that it took Hitler from about 1933, when he first came into power, as I remember, until 1939, I think it was September 1st, 39, when he attacked Poland. About six years. Is it going to take the next dictator six years to launch his attack? Maybe, but maybe not. Because, frankly, you have had thousands, thousands, literally, of regulations already put in place in Europe. Their railheads are the same. Much of their equipment is the same and interchangeable today. Their highway systems are already blended together. They're, everything all over Europe is all set. All these regulations, they've got a common currency already. They've got this and that all in place already. And when the dictator comes in, things can happen quickly next time much more quickly. So let's understand. Watch and pray always. Cry out to God. Say, Father in heaven, please send Jesus as King of kings. But please help us, your servants, have an impact on this world. Help us reach out to these people, Father. 
We have this opportunity. We will be rewarded forever if we reach out to them and do our part as your servants. Help us and guide us. Give us the extra money for this work. Please, if it's me, your will, call some millionaires. I don't think he's going to call any billionaires, but call some millionaires and maybe some hundred millionaires and some people that can give big money. Move them. We can go on more television stations, more radio stations, print more magazines, beef up the Internet, reach out more powerfully. Please call more ministers. We need more ministers desperately. Call more people into your work. Bring more of our scattered brethren with us and cry out to God. We want to have an impact on this world. And God wants us to, but let's have our hearts in it. Pray always that you may be counted worthy. We need to be worthy obeying God and doing our part to reach out to our brethren, that we may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. What's that indicating? That's indicating there will be a way of escape and to stand before the Son of Man. Yes, it can all turn out good when Christ comes for us if we're praying. Let's notice now, turn back to Revelation one more time. Revelation chapter 3. And here he's describing our church era. The next of the last church era. Mr. Partian and I have worked with Mr. Herbert Armstrong in actually building the work that he did, perhaps more than any other men that are still alive today. Because we weren't just around, we were actually right in the big, big middle of it doing that work. And we're trying to carry on that work today, the work of the Philadelphia era of God's church. And God says to the angel, the messenger of the church of Philadelphia, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. And brethren, again, the key of David has everything to do with true government. As you'll see, King David was the benchmark of the right kind of ruler. And he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens... I know your works. I've said before you an open door. And as you read 2 Corinthians, if you want to look up some scriptures, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and verse 12 and Colossians 4 and verse 3 and so on, you'll find that term door used for opening up a door, an opportunity to preach the truth. That's the way it's always used in the Bible. So God opened the door of radio and later the door of television and certainly the door of the printing press to Mr. Armstrong. Today he's opened all those doors to us. He's not shut those doors. We're still getting on more stations. And now we also have the door of the Internet, which can reach out over the world as a whole even more powerfully, more thoroughly. I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. Mr. Armstrong was thrown off individual stations, as we have been, but the door was never closed. For you have a little strength, and you better believe we have a little strength. We're tiny and have kept my word. Brethren, we've got to try to do that with all our hearts, to keep the word of God and do what God says, whether it's popular or not. And have not denied my name, meaning God's authority, everything about God. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, these false churches who claim to be Christians or spiritual Jews and aren't, I'll make them to know that I have loved you because you've kept my command to persevere. Some of us were with Mr. Armstrong 
And now we're persevering right on to the very end as best we can. And I hope all of you will persevere to the end of your lives. I also will keep you from the hour of trial. What's that? The hour of trial which will come upon the whole world. What is this God will keep you from if you're in the Philadelphia era doing the work of God, going through the open doors? It means God Himself, the Creator, will protect you, bless you, help you. Some of you have had loved ones die. I heard from one of the Powers family that uh, one young woman had a miscarriage. I'm really sorry about all those things that I have prayed in my mind, and I know we've had a number here who have had loved ones die. My first wife died at age 40, and I was just 46. But I realize God's work goes on, time goes on. God allows everyone to die at some point, And he, for him, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. But overall, he guides the big events. He works with us, and he helps those if they do die in the faith. They may be better off than we are. My wife Margie may be better off than me. Because she can't fall away. She can't keep making mistakes. I keep making more mistakes every day, you know. And Mr. Carl McNair and, and Mr. Uh, John O'Gwen and, and all the other fine ministers who've died, they can't fall away now. They're, they've got it made. And the next split second, bang, they're going to be with us. So we have to think of it from God's point of view. Don't think God has deserted us if one of us gets sick or has a miscarriage or someone dies. That's not the case. We are blessed overall by being knowing His purpose and being called now to be the leaders in tomorrow's world. If you persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial. These people who've died are not going to go through the, court, through the Great Tribulation. They're not going to go through the concentration camps. They're not going to go through the horrible trials that are coming on this world. Some of us may have to do that to test those who dwell on the world. So you are blessed. We are blessed if we know the truth and if we hang in there. So we want to have that spirit. Behold, I come quickly. He's going to come quickly on this generation. Hold fast that you have, that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, God grant that you're an overcomer and that I am. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, a great, strong support and the very government of God that will last throughout all eternity. And he shall go out no more. Some of us had to go out of the worldwide church of God as they fell away. It may have a kind of a meaning there. You'll go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write on him my new name. God will give some of you a title, meaning you are going to be, they have this authority, this responsibility in God's government throughout all eternity, you know. Four-star general, so-and-so, whatever your title is, it won't be that, but you know what I mean. God has great rewards for us, brethren. Our Father in heaven has all the power in the universe. We have every blessing. But we need to realize what lies just ahead, and it's going to get darker before the dawn. So let's have faith and courage and look to the big picture and look to God's reward. He that has ears to hear, let him hear.